0: This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by GE Additive. Additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, is a transformative approach to industrial metal production that could help address material shortages due to diminishing manufacturing supply. GE Additive provides machines, metal powders, engineering, and print services that can support the Navy with spare part printing capability and a more flexible spare parts supply base. to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for a special episode of the podcast, a Editor's Roundtable, are the editors of Proceedings Magazine, the Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet, and the Deputy Editor-in-Chief, Bill Bray. Hello, gentlemen.
1: Hello. Hey, hey
0: Ward. So, Bill, I know you're fresh from a virtual board meeting. That's a first of its kind Um, Without getting into the proprietary weeds, how did it go?
2: First ever virtual board of directors meeting of the Naval Institute. We have uh, five or six new board members who just joined the board yesterday, uh, including uh, former astronaut Charlie Bolden, former Pac Fleet commander Scott Swift, uh, Kathleen Hicks from CSIS. Uh, We've got uh, Admiral Moran, the former vice chief of naval operations. And so it it was a great thing. Um, you know, everybody tuned in via go to meeting and we went through the business, uh, first quarter business of the, of the Naval Institute. talked about financials, talked about ad revenue, talked about membership, talked about how things are going with the Jack C. Taylor conference center, which, uh, is, is amazing given all the impacts to the world from the pandemic. The uh, construction of our, of our conference center continues, as our chairman said, continues at pace and is on track for a, a timely delivery. So we expect, um, essentially to be complete in January next year. Uh, so that's exciting. And, and I went over to the Institute yesterday. I know you did too, Ward, to help out with the uh, the annual meeting. It was uh, It's kind of cool to look down in what has been a big hole behind Beach Hall for the, the last couple of months as they've been doing all the site preparation stuff. And now you can see concrete and steel starting to rise up out of that hole. Uh, and so it, it, it's really starting to come together
0: to segue to the discussion about the annual meeting the first virtual annual meeting we had about 500 people tune in as we all know as longtime members of the naval institute and folks who've attended annual meetings through the years those are a, a signature event during the year a time for us to get face to face with folks who've been active uh, in the forum during that year i always look forward to the events each and every year and this year we were robbed of the face to face piece by covid-19 but I don't think it could have gone any better in terms of the audible into the virtual ecosystem. Uh, As you mentioned, Bill, I was part of the production team there in the lobby of beach hall. It was set up to look like really a a broadcast studio, Um, you know, screens and cameras and monitors and technicians and our events team as always just blew it out of the park. We beamed in Admiral Fogo from Naples. They were six hours ahead of us. So it was near on 11 PM over there. Thank you. Admiral Fogo's staff for making that, you know, the good deals just keep on coming on the staff there. Uh, but he was the perfect guest to have for this particular opportunity, because he's a a guy who gets it, as we say, quote unquote, in terms of the Naval Institute. He's always been active uh, since he was a uh, mid and, uh, and a J.O. And uh, he's one of the Stavridis Mullen School of Poet Warriors that uh, is very much heart of the envelope for the flag officers that we like to present to our members. So I thought that was just a fantastic uh, event. And uh, we were all high five. Well, we weren't touching each other, of course, Uh, in in (laughs) accordance with the protocol of of, of social distancing. We were distance high fiving each other when it was all done. um, And it, uh, it came off great, you know, so uh, real happy. And I know Pete was very happy with how it it went down as well.
2: Yeah, I agree. Uh just mentioned a couple of things uh, congratulations again to the authors of the year they were uh presented last night so uh, uh for proceedings author of the year is commander graham scarborough who wrote a number of pieces in uh, in proceedings and on our blog uh last year he's been on the podcast a couple times as well we had barrett tillman uh as the naval history author of the year um we also had the winners of the general prize essay contest and the first prize winner Jeff Vandenagel Commander Jeff Vandenagel his article is in the May issue of proceedings which is now online and it should be hitting your mailbox we double checked with our printers up in Chicago uh, that that uh, issue went into the mail last week and should be hitting people's uh, mailboxes uh, soon and then we had the uh, the winners of the uh, midshipman and cadet essay contest uh, last year as well uh, all uh, mentioned by Pete during his uh, remarks at the annual meeting.
0: So let's unwrap the meeting in, in sort of specific topical ways, starting with Admiral Fogo's comments. Bill Bray, what what struck you in terms of the high-level takeaways from what Admiral Fogo had to say?
3: Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, he's he's been a longtime member, supporter, contributor to the Naval Institutes, um, so he's a perfect guest. Um, he's been in Navier for a couple of years now. He's going to, um, I think, retire this summer. I'm not sure if you mentioned that. But, uh, and uh, and he, so he started with um, kind of the importance of the Institute, the importance of contributing to the open forum. And, uh, and then he talked about his experience as Navier NABAF commander um, and the different challenges that, that, that they're facing from the high end threat the Battle of the Fourth Battle of the Atlantic, and then he also talked a lot about what he calls the seventh domain of warfare, which we published his article uh, the day prior to the annual meeting. Um, uh, the title was Germs, Seventh Domain of Warfare, um, and he, he very eloquently talked about entering an age of pandemics. The world is far more globalized. It is um, you know over 7 billion people now, Um, and if we think this is going to be a one-off for another 100 years, we're probably fooling ourselves. Um, There's been a lot of work in the scientific community over the last 15, 20 years about trying to understand um, how a pandemic starts and how to control it. Um, The world missed this one, or didn't miss it, but we weren't able to control it, so it will happen again, and I think Amofogo's points, uh, which are very good, which is that, hey, militaries need to understand how to deal with it and still meet the mission requirements.
0: Yeah, I know Greg Glaros, uh, who's on the board of trustees, asked a question about, specifically to your point, Bill Bray, um, how will NATO training have to adjust in the face of this ongoing pandemic threat?
2: Yeah, he said it's, you know, this is going to change how they prepare, how they, you know, get ships underway, how they uh, Controlled movement across ships. He mentioned uh, a, a three-dimensional VTC system that his headquarters is using, and how it's almost as good as being in the room with the other people that are uh, that are up with you on the VTC. Uh, they're using that right now uh, with uh, his NATO counterparts and with his uh, U.S. counterparts across uh, European Command. Uh, so he said, you know, one, it saves, it helps us save some money in TAD. But it also right now, you know, uh, helps us to have the meetings, that, the required meetings that we need to have uh, that we can't have in person. Right. So those are a couple of things we I wanted to mention that, uh, you know, within Admiral Fogo's uh, theater of operations, there's four uh, DDGs currently based in Rota, Spain. And he mentioned a couple of those uh, yesterday to Donald Cook. He mentioned uh, ship operations up in the Black Sea in the eastern Mediterranean and some of the uh uh, behavior of the Russians uh, coming out to intercept unprofessionally both P-8 aircraft and and uh, U.S. Navy ships. Well, we got a, a submission to proceedings just a couple of days ago from one of the former COs of one of those DDGs in Rhoda describing how sh- his ship was essentially self-quarantining uh, their sailors on board the ship uh, at the start of their time at sea, right? So they they come aboard, They quarantine. They may go out for some local operations, but they do not intermix. They don't go back ashore. And there's a 14 day period before they then go on a a longer deployment, if you will, out into the Eastern Med or up into the uh, up into the Black Sea to do their uh, their regional Aegis, you know, TBM mission, uh, theater ballistic missile mission. So those kinds of things, those best practices are now, I think, working their way across the fleet and people are starting to see there was a news story about how the Nimitz had done that on the West Coast as the aircraft carrier got underway. They also sort of quarantined, the airwing quarantine back at Lemoore before they came out to the ship. And so there's just these preparations to make sure that when a ship gets underway, that everybody is uh, disease free. And then that when they get them underway in that, in that category, uh, that they maintain that capability and they don't compromise it by unnecessarily putting people ashore or bringing people out to the ship who who perhaps could be infected.
0: Regardless of the opening of America discussion in the various states that open today, in fact, the fleet has to adjust along the lines of what you're talking about. This is the new normal, certainly until there's a universally accepted vaccine that's available fleet wide. So this is going to add op tempo. This is going to cause a train wreck in terms of ships relieving ships. We know that DOD is currently under a PCS lockdown until the end of June and how that matrix works in terms of, you know, mandatory orders and nice to do orders is, is always in flux. So this is just really an amazing, amazing world. We've talked in passing about the impacts on the Naval Academy. Um, I understand that today they're doing their final exams uh, is among the days of final exams that they're doing virtually. As we've said before, that the commissioning week is canceled and, and there's going to be sort of a staggered graduation event in some fashion, but not with the whole class at once. And uh, they're going to come back and and get their medical records and their sign their commissioning documents. In some cases, go right to flight school, right to TBS. In other cases, go away and come back for a TAD period um, in the mid-June time frame. So we're adjusting to a world that is really uh, unprecedented. It's safety first, but there are some drivers that are going to force us into uh, into matrices that uh, that we've never had to navigate before.
2: Yeah, I got some insights from one of our former summer interns, Shipman, Kyle Chang, class of 2020 at the Naval Academy. So he's currently back in at his home with his family in California. He called me last night to ask a couple of questions about writing for proceedings and writing for one of our essay contests. And I said, you know, what are you hearing? He said, well, it's looking right now like um, they're going to bring the class of 2020 back in fifths. And so uh, he'll he, each one of those 20 percentiles will come to Bancroft Hall. They'll have two days there. Uh, one day will be the processing. One day will be the moving all their stuff out of their rooms, and then there'll be a short commissioning ceremony for that quintile of the class. And then the next part of the class will come in and do the same thing. And so, the uh, that that's just a really interesting adaptation, right? Of okay, you got to bring these guys back, you guys and gals back. You got to get all their stuff out of Bancroft. You got to get them, you got them. Graduation slash commissioning ceremony, but it'll be done in, you know, one fifth of the class at a time, socially distance and then, and then move out, move on. He said he'll probably go back to California and then come back later, as you said, for his uh, summer TDY period before he reports to nuke school. He's going to be a submariner. He'll report to nuke school in September, October timeframe.
0: And of course, among parents, especially parents of 2020, there's a lot of "what ism, and there's a lot of, but Air Force this, but West Point this. Let's talk briefly about what each one of those service academies has done or is doing and why. So Air Force had their commissioning event on April 18th. They had some challenges between when COVID-19 pandemic and quarantine started, which is basically mid-March and mid-April. Meaning they had two suicides and they also had some other struggles with the, uh, what was happening within the Corps of Cadets. So when this hit, unlike Annapolis and West Point, Air Force was in session. The other two were on spring break. So they were there. They were kept there. And then basically they had a, some other stuff happen, including the Faculty Senate basically mutinied and said, we're not doing face-to-face classes. And so that forced the soup and the other uh, military officials to accept the notion of distance learning. And long story short, they decided to just call the semester. And so as we all saw, it was sort of this Orwellian looking scene where they're in the stadium. They're separated, you know, by six feet or more wearing white surgical masks, sitting there listening to the Veep speak. Um, and they got their diploma and their commissioning documents, no parents present, and they they moved on. So that's how Air Force did it. Now break, break, West Point, and this is really becoming sort of a cause celeb in in various media outlets, in terms of the forcing function for them doing a face to face graduation is the president being the keynote speaker. Um, so they're they're doing finals, they're gonna go away to their homes, and then they're all gonna descend back on on West Point at the end of, I want to say it's the end of May, but it could actually be later than that. No, end of May um, for, you know, basically listening to the commander in chief talk. Um, and that's the driver behind this reason to have it be face to face. So Navy, I think uh, Secretary Esper was supposed to be the keynote. So he doesn't have the gravitas or the the heft of, of POTUS. Um, and he probably just said, look, I, don't worry about me. You know, I'm, I'm good and just do it however you deem the safest and most effective way. And so that's how they've divided into what was the word you use there? Quintuplets or centi- quintiles? Quintiles. Excellent. He's
3: an yes, editor.
0: That, that's fantastic <laughs> diction there. Um, World class. So you listen to the proceedings podcast, your word power is going to go up exponentially. Um, so for those who are going to do the whataboutism, here's why. Navy is choosing to do it the way that that they're doing it. You know, I think it's sound and and they're they're doing kick saves and audibly in a way that is unprecedented. And that's an understatement.
3: That's a great wrap up Ward. And one other thing I would add to that is um, the Naval Academy, unlike certainly unlike Air Force and West Point, is far more situated downtown in Annapolis and, you know, Air Force, if you had anyone has been to the campus, it's about a mile from the gate uh, just to get to the school. West Point also is more isolated. So Admiral Buck, the superintendent of the Naval Academy, had to consult uh, um, regularly with both the mayor of Annapolis and uh, the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, who's right, you know, a uh, stone's throw away from where Admiral Buck lives um, to, to, to coordinate this decision on how to do it, because the impact of bringing families back and bringing midshipmen back to Annapolis is different than it is bringing uh, cadets to the Air Force Academy, or they were already there, or, or cadets back to
2: uh, West Point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really good point. The three different schools are very differently situated, right? Uh, I wanted to go back to a little bit about what Admiral Fogo talked about last night. And Bill Bray, you were the uh, the N2 or the head of intelligence for Sixth Fleet and NAVU just a few years ago. So Admiral Fogo now the commander of Naval Forces Europe and Africa. So I'm, from your perspective, um, I'm want your take on what he mentioned about the, the current challenges in his mm-hmm. theater from the Russians and also from the Chinese.
3: Yeah. So he, um, so he's the NAVF, NAVUO commander. That is his U S command hat. Um, he's got a NATO command hat as well, which he spends at, well, I don't know what he personally does, but when I was there, the commander of NATO, uh, spent more time on the NATO side and uh, then on the U S side. But that is getting down into the weeds. Um, so the, the Russian, um, well, I was there in 2012 to 14 and I was interesting the first half of my tour, Russia was not a concern to the commanders. Really. Um, uh, I briefed uh, Russian activity, um, you know, as it happened, uh, it was not the priority in the fall of 2013, In November of 2013, um, protests uh, broke out in Kiev, Ukraine, uh, protesting the prime minister's decision, um, actually the president's decision, not to to agree to EU accession. He basically did a 180 on his promise. Um, That led to, you know, what everyone knows, a, a whole winter of discontent and protests until eventually he was run out of the country. Russia was extremely upset about this, and it led to the takeover of Crimea and um, and a insurgency in the eastern part of Ukraine. So at that point, obviously, the whole world, if they hadn't woken up already, woke up to, oh my gosh, Russia is really a problem still. Um, and with that decision, um, NATO uh, kicked the Russians out of—the uh, Russians had advisors in at NATO headquarters, and they were sent home, and um, and all the countries took a round turn on this problem to say maybe we've you know missed this, and on the way uh, in in those so now Russian military activity becomes you know really interesting to uh, to leadership. Uh Fogle arrives a few years later, and the Russian Navy, um, as he talked about in the Fourth Battle of Atlantic, is far more active. They're not the Soviet Navy in the numbers uh, that they could put out into the sea. They are very capable. They, uh, President Putin, Prime Minister—and and he was Prime Minister—but President Putin reinvigorated uh, the Navy shipbuilding program to, to what he could do, um, and um, and they got uh, they got a little bit of that back on track. And now it's it's a it's a threat to be dealt with, um, and you can't deal with it without forces. So uh, while Sencom was sucking all the forces up. For years, um, you know, the the Navier had very little force structure to work with, and that has changed now. So you you see strike groups operating in the Atlantic, in the Med, you see more forces. So it's not back to the old Sixth Fleet 1980s days, but given where we are today with a a fleet of under 300 ships, Navier is getting, you know, is much more operational than it was even when I was there, certainly 10 or 15 years ago.
0: Okay, we'll be right back after a quick Conversation with this month's sponsor, GE Additive. This month, the sponsor of the Proceedings podcast has been GE Additive, and joining us now is Mark Shaw from GE Additive. Hello, Mark. Hello. Tell us a little bit about what GE Additive is. GE Additive is
1: a company that sells additive, it's obvious by the name. Um, additive means uh, selling machines and materials. Um, it also What you see reflected is our history of GD Additive, where we came from. We sell application services, design services, material services, material engineering services uh, to help our customers meet their end application. Where where our business, it was born out of the aviation industry. Um, So we help customers, whether they're in aviation, automotive, or, or in the case of the Navy, spare parts or whatever the need is Um, we also have additionally print services so as the need would arise we have the ability to make additive parts for customers Um, most folks have now seen or have at home a plastic 3d printer uh, hooked up to their home computer that is additive manufacturing in the context of what we sell it's metal originally was developed for aviation components and now is more broadly sold across the industry.
0: So when I hear about 3D printing, I still don't know how it works. Can you give me a layman's rundown of how you would serve a customer with the 3D printing capability? So
1: 3D printing quite simply is a 3D computer model. So we've all seen 3D illustrations uh, either on television or where, in this case, industrial parts can be modeled on a computer uh, with full resolution in three dimensions. Um, that image is sent directly to a printer, and then the geometry of that the part is created, in this case, layer by layer, um, from raw material. So in the case of your home computer, there is a Filament, which is like a plastic rope that is melted like a hot glue gun, and a computer controls it and places that layer upon layer to create whatever widget, chess piece, or whatever it is you're printing at home. In our case, we're printing industrial components, so we use metal powder, all of it. We use titanium powders, steel powders, aluminum powders, and welding, whether that be laser welding or electron beam welding, we create that same part in a layer by layer fashion. And then what is interesting, because I'm not starting with a large block of metal or wood or some other media and then removing material, um, there's very little waste because I'm creating the part directly from the raw material and I don't have to carve it away as with many machining and drilling and other traditional manufacturing processes.
0: So what's the practical fleet application of this? Would I be like a, an AIMD on an aircraft carrier or a squadron at sea that needs a part and it's very time sensitive? I don't have time to wait for it to fly aboard via COD or whatever. How would I use this and how does this take us to the next generation of, of serving the fleet's needs? Additive is,
1: you may have heard the word disruptive additive. disrupts the supply chain in many different ways. Um, Where we entered this conversation was for new products. Uh, We were developing new products, new jet engines in this case for the Navy. Um, And so we were able to create parts that were lighter, cheaper, more efficient, uh, more durable um, by the use of additive manufacturing. I think germane to this conversation is another value proposition, which is very different, which is quite simply speed. Um, And speed, it it is exactly what you said with these aging fleets, uh, a diminishing supply chain or spares that just are not readily available. If one would need a metal part, additive can be used in such a way that I go to my digital warehouse, that same computer model we talked about. I can download that to the machine and print it. In most cases, there is a little bit of what we call post-processing required. You might have to hit it with a machine tool, a drill to finish the part, but it's it, we're able to print it uh, in nearly final net shape. So all that to say that rather than reaching into an existing supply base and waiting for however many months for delivery, you're able to print on demand and develop that part. And, and small volumes typically is a challenge uh, for our supply chain. As you know, you need it. You need one valve or one whatever metal piece, and the problem typically is not just the manufacturing part, but it's the logistics channels. Additive has really been able to disrupt that by being able to provide on demand, uh, whether it be on board ship or whether it be at the waterfront or some other distributed
0: location. So, Mark, we had hoped to do this interview face-to-face at CR Space. CR Space was canceled by the current pandemic that we're all dealing with. Here I am in my home office. You're there in your uh, your workshop at home. But I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. And thanks to GE Additive for your sponsorship of the Proceedings Podcast in the month of April.
1: And thank you for the time to talk about Additive. I think we all believe, including our Navy customer, that Additive will be used in readiness and with use of spare parts. So we, as a company, are investing a lot in the technology to bring that capability to the Navy.
0: That was Mark Shaw from the GE Additive team. Okay, we're back. So, Bill, you were just making a great point about the new NAVUR the new Sixth Fleet AOR, and when we talk about the 80s and, and what it was like then, that was my heyday as a JO, right? With Soviet Union and Krivax and cat and mouse in the med and a lot of port calls into Naples and so forth and so on, that world has completely changed. And as you've said, as Admiral Fogo mentioned last night, they become more operationalized in, in this return to peer conflict and in the current threat circumstance. The other thing you mentioned, and this is... In the wake of Acting Secretary Maudley leaving the job, there are questions about where does that leave us with the 355 ship plan? Because that was his cause celeb, and we saw that from the first moment he spoke to us at Defense Forum Washington last November. And one of the questions was specifically to Emma Fogo, is 355 the right number still? Um, And Bill, how did he answer that one?
3: I think he answered it the right way, which was, I'd love 355. I'd actually love more. Um, You know, more is better. Um, And we certainly have plenty of missions to do it. He didn't weigh in on whether it was realistically achievable um, in the next 15, 20 years. Um, He didn't answer that question.
0: Yeah, nor Uh, would a four-star at this point would never weigh into that landmine, right, into that minefield. Uh, he did speak about, and, and there were some, I can tell you, because I was monitoring the chat room to curate questions. Um And and when he was talking about the shipyards, there was a lot of, that's not enough, and there aren't any on the West Coast and dot, 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 right? So um, that's sort of the the issue behind whatever you want, that's nice. You can want more than 355, but there are concerns about the ability to build 355 currently based on our infrastructure.
3: Yes, right. And there's a lot of obviously our listeners, many of them know, um, been following along the proceedings. Um, there's a lot of debate and discussion about this topic. Um, there are a lot of creative, innovative ways to approach presence and naval presence overseas, um, but you just can't get completely around the fact that you need ships um, with people on them, um, and uh, and you and there's only. S- you know so low you can go and, and maintain a presence overseas so this is a real challenge for the nation uh, going forward um of what what do we need what can we build and uh and how do we get
2: there and what does the mix look like it's a never-ending debate we published a good piece by harlan Ullman last week called uh there's now only one path to 355 and harlan is a longtime proceedings contrib- contributor, uh, member of the Atlantic Council, uh, and a retired Navy captain who's advised uh, CNOs in the past. And, and his point was, hey, COVID-19 is going to have an impact on the national budget and deficit, right? And so uh, even before COVID-19, the, the uh, Navy was feeling some tremendous pressure on its shipbuilding construction uh, budget, the SCN budget. And that was actually cut over the next uh, couple of years. That was before COVID-19. So to continue building the types of ships that the Navy has been building, which are generally large with large crews, uh, exquisite capabilities, right? Think Ford class, think DDG Flight 3, think Virginia class submarines, all amazing and you know sort of world-class platforms but you can't afford to get to the right number to 355 if that is the right number, which is written into the 2018 uh, national defense strategy, by the way, it's law. Um, you can't get to that number unless we start to change the types of capabilities that we procure, the mixture of manned and unmanned, the mixture of sort of high, you know, back to the eighties analogy, the high, low mix, you got to have some capable, you got to have ships that can do the, The peacetime presence missions, things like patrol boats and frigates, uh, and then you've got to have some high end capabilities for the high end fight. But, you know, that that debate's going to continue to go on. We're seeing it in proceedings. We're seeing things way way into USNI news you know, Admiral Fogo, who's a force user, not a force provider, didn't really want to get into the how do we get to 355? That's not really his job. But he did say, hey, that, you know, we need to have all the force structure we can, given the challenges of the Chinese, of the Russians, of all the other challenges to, uh, you know, international free trade and movement on the high seas that are out there. Uh, So we're going to see this continue to play out the debate will go on it'll be i'll be curious to see when the new um the new secretary of the navy gets uh you know um, approved and then where does he take it you know kind of moving on from what modley left behind of course
3: more ships too. me is a bigger navy, and a bigger navy means more people more training more operational tempo money um it's not you know, to maintain a, a, a 355 ship navy is a cost that's that's you know much more than obviously building more ships. And this idea of minimally manned, which was a which was a term that was accepted in the early 2000s as a way to the future with technology, is not used as much anymore. It is not as much in vogue, especially after the 2017 collisions and the and the the fatigue and the tempo on crews it doesn't mean you don't look for manning efficiencies on ships uh you always do but you know you can't get around the fact that you need a a crew that is big enough that that they can they they can get the sleep they need the rest they need to operate
2: at sea for long periods of time it's one thing to steam around in peacetime, make port visits and show the flag but if you're contemplating you know, sailing into harm's way, then you need to have a crew that can actually sustain and, and come back from battle damage.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And refer the audience to the podcast episode we did a few months ago, seems like a few lifetimes ago now, with, with the Chief of Naval Personnel where we actually addressed that, or we asked him the question, he addressed some of the concerns with respect to growing the fleet. Another thing we will mention in terms of breaking news on the shipbuilding front is Fink and Cherry, about the time we were doing the member meeting Yesterday afternoon, won the FFGX contract, so that's worth roughly about seven hundred fifty million dollars, and that class of ship um, is going to be very important to the strategy going forward. The last topic that we have time for today, I wanted because we've mentioned, I think we mentioned in passing, the fact that Malcolm Perry, uh, the the Navy quarterback this this year, class of twenty. Um, was drafted seventh round by the Miami Dolphins. And I don't think we've done a deep dive about our feelings about the idea that there's no military commitment associated with him being drafted. Now, we know that traditionally, if you get drafted, whether it's Roger Staubach or Napoleon McCallum or David Robinson, you do some active duty. It can be trimmed down a little bit, I think, uh, David Robinson did two years, Bill Bray. He did two years, and he was a reservist for a couple more years. And But he did some active duty. I was just in a conversation with Billy Hurley, the pro golfer, class of 04, who straight up did five years before he uh, entered the ranks of the PGA Tour. And, uh, you know, golf and and football a little different in terms of shelf life, I, I guess. I, I would allow that that's true. But still, Billy wanted to go right into, you know, as a very successful collegiate golfer, intercollegiate golfer, he wanted to go right into uh, attempt to be in the PGA Tour, and he was denied that opportunity. So, you know, he did the hard jobs. He says he wouldn't do, have done it any different. And as we know, when these conversations come up about Keenan Reynolds, Mabus waived his requirement back in 2015-2016 uh, timeframe. Our buddies on Facebook and our alumni chat groups just tend to freak out. About the idea that the commitment is being waived under the header of this isn't why the Naval Academy exists, which is at once empirically true, but maybe short sighted on a couple of fronts. And let me just throw this out and you guys can weigh in. One is the math is not really prohibitive to manning the fleet. You've only had one Billy Hurley in the history of the PGA Tour, one Academy grad who's ever made it on tour. You've had maybe in recent years half a dozen folks across all the service academies get drafted and then have a sustained career. And by sustained, I mean, maybe two year or more career in the NFL. We had one baseball player and now we're about to have one more, Noah Song, and that's a separate discussion. Um, Noah selected NFO and he's been drafted by the Red Sox organization. And he's sort of in limbo at this moment, but there aren't really that many people. And we know famously that that President Trump was in the locker rooms of both academies during the Army-Navy game and kind of put out the, hey, because of me, you guys can go make a bunch of money and then you can go join the service. (laughs) I think everyone's like, yeah, really? The math doesn't really work, right? And so that's part A. Part B is if the public affairs mechanisms, in this case of the Navy and Marine Corps, are smart, they will better leverage the visibility they would get with a Kenan Reynolds or a Malcolm Perry or a Billy Hurley. And, and I don't know why they don't do that, whether there's something they're afraid of, the unintended consequences of embracing uh, a, a professional athlete who didn't do their commitment. I, I don't know. So what are your guys' thoughts around this, this particular subject?
3: So here are a couple things I think about this. One, it, it's, too, it's too reliant on the administration in power. It's too political. In other words, one president wants to do it one way another president wants to do it another way. So if you're an athlete at a service academy, you really it's timing issue. You know, if I, you know, if I'm lucky enough that um, you know, the political winds are blowing in the direction of allowing more academy grads, military academies to go pro, then all good. My feeling is the Congress has ceded too much space to the executive on this issue. The Congress, you know, funds the the military academies Um, And it would be better if there was a rigorous debate in in our democracy and a law passed that allows service academies, uh, athletes to go pro under certain circumstances, whatever that could be worked out in legislation. And then that way it's a matter of law that will transcend different political party administrations. Um, And also I think it would give the American people a little more – uh, through their elected representatives, a little more input into this decision, since they are footing the bill for these service academies. The other th- qu- uh, point I would make, real quickly, is what sports is this applying to? Just big sports, big four like uh, football, basketball. You talked about Billy Hurley being a golfer. What about you know the box lacrosse league? I mean, you come up with you come up with a lot of professional sports that are below the radar. With that, a indoor soccer. Midshipman- Yes. The Baltimore I mean, Blast,
0: they're gigantic.
3: So so where does it, you know, it, it seems very um, uneven. Um,
2: Ar- and- arbitrary.
0: Well, yeah, it, uneven is right. It's not arbitrary. It's, it's exactly the big ticket sports where the it seems like the impact of the earned media is going to justify the, the decision. Right. I mean, I think we all had grand visions of Keenan Reynolds being on Monday Night Football saying, Keenan Reynolds, Navy. When they introduced their, and, and that's, that's great recruiting value. Unfortunately, in Keenan's case, it never happened. He had his moment of glory this year as a member of, wait for it, the XFL, right? And now the XFL has been canceled because of COVID-19. So is he going back to the fleet now? Is he, is he going to fulfill that after it's over, he's going to go ahead and, and, and does he show up as an ensign or a lieutenant or what? I'm a huge fan of Navy grads being on professional sports and and wearing the colors, um, you know, when they're on TV. You know, that's that's a source of great pride for us. But at the same time, as a taxpayer, I, uh, you know, I kind of want my the fiduciary responsibility needs to be to pay for what's the the intent of the service. academy.
3: And the coaches. Right. So the Navy coaches get paid to win games. And if they don't win, they get fired. And we saw a couple get fired this year, I mean, after the seasons are over. So they're under immense pressure. So if they can go out and recruit athletes and with the caveat that, hey, if you're good enough to be a pro, don't worry about it. um, That gives them a recruiting, you know, a a tool in their toolkit for recruiting that uh, they they otherwise didn't have. But it sort of gets to Ward's point about what's the mission and how far do you let that go?
2: I'm also of two minds about this. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I'm classmates with and what was company mates with David Robinson. And he was one of those really unusual circumstances. He came in and he was about six foot six, six foot seven. And he grew to seven foot one while he was at the academy. Uh, and and the fame that he brought to the Naval Academy uh, was really valuable. I think the Navy in the 80s capitalized on that, right? They, and he wanted the Navy to capitalize on that goodwill and on that fame so that he was a spokesperson for the Navy uh, to, to much greater value than his service as a you know, Civil Engineering Corps officer ever could have been. right? So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that if you come in and you uh, have a potential as a professional athlete from any one of the service academies and you get recruited to go play for the NFL or the NBA or women's NBA, whatever it is, uh, I think once your career and most of those careers will peter out after two, three, five years. I think once you once that peters out, I think you owe, you know, you owe the taxpayer your service. I think you go back in, and it, at least it should be a reserve commitment to serve for five years as a naval reservist or Marine Corps reservist. But I think that's really important to have that uh, part of the hey, I came in, I was educated by the taxpayer, I went to the Naval Academy, I agreed, I ra- raised my right hand. I swore the oath, and uh, yeah, I got to go play professional sports somewhere, but I also have to pay this back, and that's that's got to be, a, I think that really needs to be a, a bedrock tenet of this uh, commitment. I have one more thing I'm really excited. Uh, we just have uh, worked on and are starting to announce, uh, it'll be announced in the June issue of Proceedings, which we're working on now, and it'll also be on our websites, the Naval Institute and SIMSEC, the Center for International Maritime Security are going to co-host or co-sponsor a Naval Short Fiction Contest this fall. The deadline will be in September. Uh, we'll be judging those, uh, those essays. We've got a number of uh, fiction authors like August Cole and Ward Carroll who have agreed to, uh, to help judge those, uh, those uh, essays, and then we'll publish them on the Naval Institute and on the SIMSEC uh, uh, website in probably the December timeframe. So that is a new uh, essay contest for us, or a new contest for the Naval Institute. Uh, we're partnering with SIMSEC. They've had some really good fiction on their website the last couple of years, so very excited about that. Look for the details to come in the June proceedings and on our website.
0: A life of anonymity and broken dreams can be yours. It's very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. It's always great to circle up in the Editor's Roundtable. We'll be back next week with a real guest. Um, Who are we having, Bill?
2: We are going to have Shashi Kumar, who writes the Merchant Marine and uh, maritime administration review uh, every year for the uh, May issue of the proceedings. Uh, it's a really great round roundup this year of sort of the, uh, uh, the the health of the international maritime uh, community and maritime industry. And he took it into. Uh, the first quarter of 2020 with uh, impacts on uh, the civil merchant marine of COVID-19. So very interesting. Sashi's an expert. He works for the Transportation Department in the Maritime Administration. He's a a true expert. He's written that uh, that column for us for the last uh, probably 10 years, at least in the Naval Review issue or the May issue. So it'll be a really interesting conversation and something a little bit outside of our normal wheelhouse.
0: Okay, so until then, don't touch your face. Remember social distancing, wear a mask if you can, and keep yourself healthy. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you next time. This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by GE Additive. Additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, is a transformative approach to industrial metal production that could help address material shortages due to diminishing manufacturing supply. GE Additive provides machines, metal powders, engineering, and print services that can support the Navy with spare part printing capability and a more flexible spare parts supply base.